you know, you do the same amount of marketing work to optimize a $100,000 revenue company as you do to optimize a $100 million revenue company. If you can focus on SEO or focus on whatever your skill set is, if you're, an, you know, a Google AdWords person and you grow revenue 10%, it's the same amount of work to do it at a $100 million company as a six-figure company. And yet the payoff is so much bigger. So I, I think there's a strong argument to, at least you're, if you're in a consulting capacity, going bigger. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month, and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K, and TIPS, T-I-P-S as in sugar, to 33444, and you get instant access. All right, everybody. Today we have Drew Sanaki, who is the founder of Nerd Marketing. So Drew writes about e-commerce and has bootstrapped or did bootstrap his own retailer in 2003 and he grew it into a national brand, which he eventually sold in 2012. Drew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, my name is Drew Sanaki. I started an online retailer in 2003 called Design Public, which was a retailer of, still is a retailer of modern contemporary home design products and uh, bootstrapped that grew it through 2011 2012 when i sold it to a private investment group after that i started consulting for pe funds or or private equity funds and ultimately uh, joined one i'm what's called an operational partner an operational partner does diligence on potential deals and if we find one we like I may get involved operationally in growing that company. And in that capacity, I'm currently the CMO of a online retailer called Karma Loop, which is up in Boston. Karma Loop went bankrupt a year ago at this point, and we bought them out of bankruptcy, and now we are growing them back to profitability. Wow, that's a fantastic story. I mean, I remember when I was, uh, in, I think, in middle school, I used to buy a lot of stuff from Karma Loop all the time. It's just a, it's just such a crazy world um, that we're in. Karma Loop was a $100 million retailer at one yeah. point. You know, before they went bankrupt. How does that happen? I mean, you know, I, I, you, I guess you can't go too too much into details, but you know, how do, how do these things happen to you know behemoth companies? You know, in their case, I think they expanded too quickly. You know, the classic case, they ended up taking venture money, and and maybe that caused them to put you know push down their their foot on the gas and expand into a lot of areas that probably they shouldn't have expanded into, and and just. Uh, you know, once you get unprofitable and things start to cascade, you know, you you often can't stop it. So okay. they ended up bankrupt. Makes sense. So the company that you, you bootstrapped initially, I mean, talk to us about that company, you know, what you did exactly. And then, you know, what were the kind of the key drivers that, you know, led you to uh, selling it in 2012? Yeah. So that company, I was initially very passionate about modern design and um, wanted to do something in the space, tried 
producing my own line of, of furniture. But after uh, going to an, an early trade show, I quickly discovered that there was a lot of design out there already. The world didn't need another design brand. What they needed was a better way to retail it and to sell it online. So started a retailer. The retailer took off. We went from zero to a million in revenue in the first uh, year, year and a half. And um, it was 100% dropship. So we kind of treated it like a software company. So we dropshipping, for those who don't know, we, we didn't hold any inventory. And um, yeah, grew it, uh, bootstrapped it. We kind of saw the writing on the wall in 2010, 11, there were just more and more VC-backed competitive companies. And we, we figured, you know, to, to really compete with this model, we might have to raise money. Uh, we figured it was a good time to sell. And um, we were lucky enough to find a, a good team to buy us. Okay. And can you reveal the number that you sold for? No. Okay. Is, can you give us a rough range? Contractually, I can't. Okay. No problem at all. Well, give us an idea. I mean, okay, so you, you got the revenues to zero to one million quickly. I mean, at, at the high point, what was that at? I, I also can't talk about that. Wow. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> higher. Okay. <laughs> higher, higher is good. I'm, I'm going to have to assume so. I would hope so. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about, I, I guess let's talk about the key drivers of growth. And since you kind of talk about those numbers, and maybe we'll try to back into some stuff. But how did you go about acquiring, let's just say, your first hundred customers for, for Design Public? It was Design Public, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. In the early, you know, it was an SEO driven business. I think we, we chose a, a great market to go into. Modern design is tailor made for SEO because uh, you've got a lot of brands. So people don't just search for a chair. They'll search for, you know, an Eames lounge chair in black. And if you get good at SEO, you can have your site rank for a number of different brands or product categories. Uh, there's a real long tail there. And in 2003, 2004, there weren't a lot of competing retailers doing the same thing. Design Within Reach was a bigger brand, but they were really more focused on their catalog than online. So at least for the first five years, we, we operated without a lot of competition. Whenever we add a product, we ranked number one or number two for it. Just a lot of trends in our favor, you know, people going online to shop, shop more. And uh, that led to our initial customer acquisition. Okay. Now, when people start e-commerce companies, I mean, you know, when you're competing, uh, when you're dropshipping, especially, you're going to have a lot of the same products that other people have. And then the product descriptions are likely the same. And I'm imagining that if you have a ton of different SKUs, like it's hard to have custom descriptions for each and every single one. So how did you go about having, you know, quote unquote, unique content for Google to kind of get those first page rankings? <laughs> we had custom descriptions for every product. Yeah, it took a long time. Okay. I mean, we did a lot of automated stuff. So I, I remember building a little tool to uh, automate our meta descriptions and our title tags and stuff to make them look kind of unique, uh, even though they were being automated. But at the end of the day, I mean, we were bootstrapped. So I got on Craigslist and hired out-of-work comedy writers in LA to draft our product descriptions. I felt it gave the site more personality because you hit the nail on the head. When you're drop shipping, it's really hard to differentiate the two big ways we were able to differentiate was in our product copy. I looked at guys like or, or catalogs like the J. Peterman catalog that were sort of known for good copywriting. And I said, you know, this is how one way we can differentiate. Another way was in our imagery. And when you drop ship, most of your vendors give every drop shipper who carries them the same product images. And so to differentiate there, we, we built a little tool to get user submitted photos. So, you know. We didn't hold the inventory. We couldn't photograph the product ourselves. Plus, it was pretty expensive to do that. 
We just encouraged our customers to send us photos and we put those right on the product page. And was there any incentive for them to, you know, put custom photos up? Yeah, I think they got a, you know, a 10% off their next purchase. Ah, smart, smart. Okay, so get, get the other people to do the work, especially, I, I think that's a little easier once you give them 10%. And well, I want to dive back into the, the, the writers that you hired, the comedy writers. I mean, I've never actually thought of that before and I think that's genius. I mean, how does that process look? What are you paying these people? Just walk us through the process. Well, this is like ancient history. This is probably 10 years ago at this point. But, you know, you find one and, and usually if you find a good one, they've got friends who want to do it too. I think we paid a couple hundred bucks per description, showed them, you know, over time built out a process manual on how many words it should be and how they should, you know, we basically taught them SEO, like where to use some keywords. And uh, they were able to innovate around it. So it was a pretty good, effective system. You said you were paying a couple hundred bucks per description? Maybe back in the day, yeah. My God, that must add up. I mean, how many SKUs did you guys have? I mean, we ultimately had 50,000, but that number is more like there are a lot of the same item, but, but different colors and things. Uh -huh. Like obviously that they don't need a different product description. Okay. And, you know, we did a lot of 80-20 analysis too. So we're not going to focus our efforts on the whole long tail of, of products, but let's focus on the 20% that are really driving the business. Ah, uh, see, so that makes a lot more sense. Instead of spending maybe 500 or $5 million, I should say, on product descriptions, you're only focusing on the ones that are, you know, driving the, you know, a big majority of the revenues, right? Yeah. And, you know, that kind of gets to what I, I do now to, to grow companies. So I do a lot of customer segmentation and really it's for almost every online business including content businesses, you find that 20% of the customers, 20% of the readers, if you're a content business, drive 80% of the transactions, page views, you know, engagement, whatever the metric is, you have that 80-20 rule in effect. Got it. Okay. That totally makes sense. Now, where do you, I mean, you, you know, you've done, you've done, you've done e-commerce for a while. You're very familiar with it. I mean, where do you see e-commerce going in the next 10 years or so? Personally, I, I'm, I'm passionate about direct-to-consumer brands. So Amazon kind of owns everything else. But if you can develop a brand that resonates with a certain customer segment, then I think you're okay. And, um, you know, that's what I look at, at buying now in, in my role at a, at a private equity firm. How do you evaluate, you know, if you're doing due diligence, let's say you're doing due diligence on a company like Karma Loop, great company before everything fell apart. I mean, what's your process? And this is probably a really loaded question, but at a high level, how do you go about evaluating somebody? Well, for me, the diligence is more on the, the digital side. You know, they've got guys doing financial diligence who are looking for accounting irregularities and where they might make money, perhaps on the operations side. But when I go in, I look at the marketing side. And, you know, in Karma Loop's case, they're huge assets there. I mean, they were getting tremendous traffic every month. And 50% of that traffic are just kids typing in Karma Loop, .com. So like great brand awareness. And I saw that as a huge asset. Also, huge mailing list, millions of people on the mailing list. And I, a fair amount of them are active too. So that's another huge resource. And you see these two resources and then I say, well, are they really leveraging both? And I saw big opportunities across SEO, SEM, like just that the company wasn't fully optimized on certain marketing channels. I really like getting into customer segmentation. So I will go back and look at five years of transactional data, figure out what kind of customers are driving the business, and then look at their marketing and see if they are targeting those customers. And in Karma Loop's case, 
they weren't. They weren't always targeting their best customers. So that to me was an opportunity. Makes sense. And I'm sure there's marketers listening right now and they're like, you know, wow, I want to, you know, get into PE in some way, shape or form. This sounds really cool. So how did you go about getting involved in an operational, uh, an operational partnership role at a PE firm? You know, I just started consulting for these firms and uh, it's, it's my personal network. You know, it's a lot of guys I went to business school or at private equity funds. And I learned pretty quickly that they have a need for marketing. You know, almost every PE guy I talk to is asking for referrals to, to agencies or contractors because they're really sharp people, but they often have a finance background. So, you know, they're at square one in, in Google Analytics and are always looking for good people who know digital. And, um, you know, the, my consulting practice just kind of expanded to the point where it made sense to partner up with, with two firms in particular and um, help them on the marketing side. That makes sense. So it sounds like the key takeaway here is to just keep doing great work and uh, keep growing relationships. Yeah, you know, and if I, I, your audience is mostly marketers, right? Mostly marketers. I would say half-half marketers and entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I think the big, well, the big takeaway, at least for the marketers, is, you know, you do the same amount of marketing work to optimize a $100,000 revenue company as you do to optimize a $100 million revenue company. If you can... Focus on SEO or focus on whatever your skill set is. If you're an, you know, a Google AdWords person and you grow revenue 10%, it's the same amount of work to do it at a $100 million company as a six-figure company. And yet the payoff is so much bigger. So I, I think there's a strong argument to, at least you're, if you're in a consulting capacity, going bigger. I like that. And. I mean, before you, before we even started the the interview, you talked a bit, a little bit about how you you're really focused on you know maximizing uh, customer lifetime value. Can you can you gotta go into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, any business certainly in retail has two groups of customers. You know, you've got your I call them the minnows, and they are your bad customers. They're customers who often order once and never come back again, or maybe they take up a lot of customer service time. And then you've got your whales on the other end of the spectrum. The whales order several times. They pay full margin. They don't return anything. And if you look at the numbers, you often find that, you know, the whales make up five to 10% of your total customer base and they drive 80% of your revenue. If you dig deeper, you find that these whales share certain acquisition channels, even within an acquisition channel. So maybe more of them come from AdWords than from Facebook or more of them are likely to come through email than from Facebook or, or something like that. But even within that channel, certain ad groups, certain ads, even certain bits of copy are more likely than others to drive a high lifetime value customer, to drive a whale. So marketing essentially becomes first identifying those whale segments and then putting your time and effort into growing the channels that are contributing to acquiring them. Okay. And when you do your work today, and even if we look at, back at Design Public, I mean, which, what tools are, do you have in your, your toolbox right now that you consider critical? <laughs> Excel. <laughs> really? <laughs> Excel's the big one. You know, I, I'm in there modeling all the time and uh, increasingly SQL and R, which is another data analysis tool. But, you know, with a, with a very simple Excel model, and if you go to nerdmarketing.com, my blog, I, I walk you through how to do this. If you sign up for my list, I'll send you my model. But 
it's basically for more retailers than you would imagine, it costs just as much to acquire a good customer as it does to acquire a bad customer. So if the question is, how do you add another million dollars incremental revenue to your top line, there's a very strong argument to going out and acquiring more whale customers as opposed to the hundreds more minnow customers that you would have to acquire. So it's really just figuring out your customer acquisition cost and lifetime value, comparing those two numbers uh, across a variety of marketing channels. And you have on learnmarketing.com, and we're going to link to all this in the show notes, but you have links to kind of how to set up all these models using Excel and all these other tools. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite things to do when I speak. And I know, Eric, you and I are going to speak at a conference together in a couple of months. Maybe I'll do it there. But yeah, it's really just like have everybody open their computer, go into GA and start walking them through some basic segmentation. If, if they're like most retailers or most business owners, they've never done it. You know, they hear segmentation and they just think, oh, that's something Amazon does. You know, you need like big data to do that. But you don't, you know, you pretty quickly can find out segments around your best customers and your worst customers and then really see how the best ones drive your business. Yeah, I love this. I love this. I love this because people are especially, you know, marketers, especially, you know, we're all focused on looking at the latest tactic and just executing on the latest tactic. But we don't really take a step back and say, okay, how do we really utilize Excel to its maximum, you know, for to figure out what else, what other valuable insights we can dig. So I think there's a great video out there. um, I think it's called You Suck at Excel. Uh, on nice. YouTube, and then um, the, the the stuff that you're offering right now, I think is is awesome too. I'm definitely going to download it because it's it's critical to to kind of you know scale and, and build out stuff. I'm, with it, without this stuff, you're not going to be able to, right? Well, I think you get caught in tactical maneuver hell, you know, where you read blogs and me as a business owner, when I read blogs, I get stressed out, you know, because I, I make lists or I go to conferences and I just come back with a notepad filled with action items. And I just, I'm like, where the hell do I start? You know, do I start with conversion rate optimization or email subject lines or, you know, fixing, A-B testing my my paid ads, whatever. Like, I need context for all that. And I think strategically about customer analysis gives you the context, right? It's going to tell you what's driving your business and start there. You know, for your business, Eric, it might be something very different than it is for for Karma Loop, right? Like, you know, it could be a different channel. It could be email versus Facebook and, and whatever, you know, and you just kind of get the sense like you want to build the business around your best customers. And once you figure out what that is, it puts all the other tactical maneuver hell into uh, context. Yeah. And, and just to be fair, I mean, you know, you look at technology startups today, um, you know, they are, there's more tools available and people are thinking about this stuff a little more. Um, I would say, you know, I think we can just, as marketers, uh, especially, we can spend a little time on this, spend a little investment, and then uh, just help our company just by knowing this stuff. Yes, yeah, certainly. If you get, if you know, if you're bigger and it makes economic sense, you look at Costora, RJ Metrics, like their Kiss Metrics. There are a number of companies, SaaS companies, that talk about lifetime value. You right. know, and track it back to acquisition channels. But you know, if you don't want to go that route, you can do it with a spreadsheet, and that's kind of what I talk about at, at Nerd Marketing. Okay. I'm staring at the um, your about sentence again, where it says that you grew Design Public into a national brand. So, you know, obviously a lot of SEO came into play, but what else did you guys do to grow it into a national brand? And I guess the question to you would also be, what does a national brand look like? 
That's a good question. I think a national brand means you're talked about in national press. So we were in the New York Times a fair amount, GQ, Esquire, like a lot of big national magazines talked about design public. And, you know, we sold before, I would say since, since we sold, it's sort of more competitors have emerged. I think of national design brands now are just like, it's a much more crowded space than when we did it. But to me, that's what I thought when I thought of an what a national brand means, you know, that you have like, you're a player on the national field, like in the national press. Okay. So, you know, SEO did well for you guys. It sounds like there was some PR involved too. Is there anything else you guys did that was a significant driver to get that national brand? Yeah. I kind of think it's, I don't know if you read good to great by Jim Collins. Okay. So the flywheel of growth, right? You got it that there's something you do that self-reinforces SEO was great for acquisition in the early days, but what really mattered was the emergence of the design blogging community. And in 2003 to 2008, we saw more and more people getting their design news from blogs as opposed to from magazines. And I mean, now it's obvious, right? But back then, it was a new phenomenon. And when the choice was take out a $10,000 ad in Met Home or Dwell or try to get you know, Maxwell at Apartment Therapy to blog about you. Like the, the answer was clear and we should court design bloggers. And what's the one thing design bloggers want to talk about? They want to talk about what's new. And so we said, okay, if we can be about what's new, then we can get the design press to talk about us and consumers buy because they read about us in the design press. So like that was our cycle. Like it, it meant building a company that could merchandise quickly that could add product quickly, could get that product in front of the design press. And so that really dictated our, our push marketing, a lot of our email marketing and things like that to, to get new product in front of the design press. And then to take the resulting traffic from that, get them to sign up for our list and buy product and use that money to source even more new product. And that was kind of the cycle we had going. It was like a nice little call it like a content marketing cycle. It's all the content we produced and was about new product. We pushed that to the design bloggers. The readers of the blogs would come in and buy product from our site, and it went right back into merchandising more new product. So I think that cycle, that flywheel of growth, was what drove our business in the early days. I love it. So if I were to distill it, my interpretation is great content marketing coupled with, they call it influencer marketing nowadays, and it just kept you know repeating and growing over and over, right? Yeah, I mean, it obviously has to resonate with your customers. And I think in our case, it did. But, you know, that was a, that was a huge contributor to our early growth. Okay. Tell us about one big struggle you faced while growing Design Public. I think one of the biggest struggles was internally with our team. And my business partner and I wanted to take the business in one direction. Because we were growing so quickly in the early days, we hired from the design industry and ended up, we didn't want to build a design business. You know, we wanted to build like Amazon. So we butted heads with our own team. And I think it slowed down our process a lot in the early days. So in many ways, we brought people in from the design world because they could answer the phone, because they could pick up the phone and talk design. They could talk design with anybody who called in. But, you know, those people were also sort of resistant to the automated nature that we wanted to, you know, the automated elements we wanted to bring to our business. Mm, okay. I guess if you were to go back and redo it again, what, what, how would you, what would you change about the situation? 
I probably was underestimating company culture and the impact that could have on how quickly you can change. I would have been quicker to fire, you know, quite frankly, to get rid of people and to replace them with people who shared my vision. I think as a first-time entrepreneur, I was probably a little bit hesitant to do that and ended up holding on to some people longer than I, I should have. Completely guilty of that too. All right. I'm going to switch gears right now. If you were to give yourself one piece of advice at 25 years old, what would it be? I would have, I mean, 25, I was in the Navy. I was sort of, I, I think start would be the advice. Start like start the rest of your life. I think I acted at 25 like I had all the time in the world. I looked back at certain jobs I did back then and I punch a clock, I'd get out of there and I would just play video games. I don't know. I would I would kill for that kind of time today because I, I know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. But today I'm married and I have two kids and I wouldn't trade that for the world. But my entrepreneurial life has to happen Monday to Friday, you know, nine to six. That's the time and I and everything else is off limits. So back when I was 25 and single and and didn't have obligations. I had all the time in the world, but I should have tried to start like 10 companies back then. Well said. Well said. <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, you're in the Navy. So, I mean, can you share one productivity hack you, ha you have that, uh, I guess, yeah, just share one productivity hack. I have so many right now, but I, I think one of the Navy things, like the, just the importance of process was huge. I know, I guess it is a productivity hack. I, and I think research has backed that up, that you've got to, focus on the inputs in order to get the outputs. So many people want the output. You know, they want the book. They want to have written the book. They want to have created the $1 million company. That they ignore the process. And they get caught up in tactical maneuver hell, which we talked about. They try everything and they're just taking shots in the dark. What actually they should focus more on is what we called in the Navy, SOPs, Standard Operating Procedures. And for me, the standard operating procedure is, you know, Monday I get up and I write for my blog for 30 minutes, you know, and then I move on to working on Karma Loop or looking at their analytics dashboard, whatever it is for you. Just that mentality that you're going to do the work and ultimately you're going to have something to show for it. You know, I'm going to have the book, I'm going to have the blog, or I'm going to have the million dollar company. I like that. You know, it's a lot, a lot more people. I mean, now if you even look at Google Trends, a lot more people are talking about morning routines and how it sets the whole tone for the day, the week. And it just it sets the tone for, for like your life, I think. And it's all about habits. And I, I like kind of the how you're approaching it. Yeah, I mean, I love James Clear's work, jamesclear.com. And he just, you know, every other post is about creating the habits as opposed to focusing on the results and kind of the results will come. Right, right. Yeah, I like that. Um, okay, well, if you were to recommend one book to the audience, what would it be? I, do you know who Perry Marshall is? I do. Yeah, so Perry Marshall's 80-20 sales and marketing books or book is, is awesome. And it's something that everybody knows the 80-20 rule. You know, I've probably known it for 20 years. But until I read his book, it didn't really drive home just how important that book is for marketing and how much it can save you time. I mean, Tim Ferriss talks about it too, right? But Perry, I don't know. Maybe it's just the way Perry writes or something, but it resonated with me as a marketer. And for the kind of work I do, where I do a lot of customer analysis, it became blatantly obvious that you can save time and become more effective at the same time by focusing on fewer customers, your best customers. So I recommend that book. I don't know if you've read it, Eric. Yeah, great book. And I also recommend the audience. I know that we recommended one book, but any of Perry's books are good because he's one of the, the great marketers of our time. So I like that recommendation. 
All right. Well, Drew, this has been fantastic. What's the best way for people to find you online? You can email me at drew at nerdmarketing.com. My blog is nerdmarketing.com. I'm on Twitter, Drew Sanaki. But uh, yeah, check out my blog. I've got a nice autoresponder course there that talks about how we got to a million in our first year and uh, also gives you some of the spreadsheets to do some of the analysis that I talked about today. Yeah, and make sure to check Drew out at the Sellers Summit Conference in Miami. I'll be there as well in May. So uh, we'll see you guys then. <laughs> Sounds good. Hey everyone, just a quick heads up that we're giving away a ebook called 29 Growth Hacking Quick Wins. We co-authored this book with Matan Griffel of One Month and it'll give you a solid base on where you can create growth ideas from. So all you need to do is text QUICK TIPS to 33444. That's the word QUICK, Q-U-I-C-K and TIPS, T-I-P-S as in sugar to 33444 and you get instant access. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.